The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is James Meadway. We spoke about James's predictions for the world economy in the year ahead and why the notion of the polycrisis, while in some ways useful, fails to reckon with the fact that in a world of increasingly frequent severe weather events, climate disasters and greater interstate rivalry, the notion of any kind of time-bounded crisis is increasingly at odds with reality. We talked about the prospect of debt defaults in the global south, why mainstream economics is failing to factor the deteriorating ecosphere into its modelling, and finally we talked about the UK and the question as to whether or not the country is now in a unique moment of economic decline. James Meadway is an economist and director of the Progressive Economy Forum. He's a former advisor to the then Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Tribune Magazine, and Open Democracy, amongst other venues. He's also the host of Macrodose, a new weekly economics podcast, which you can listen to here on PTO. Do also check out their website for extra content and exclusive interviews. If you'd like to hear the extended 70-minute version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So James, you've recently outlined some of what you consider to be the greatest threats to the world economy in the coming year, including the ongoing food supply problems and continuing food inflation, the threat of extreme weather events, geopolitical conflict, most obviously the Ukraine war and the rising tensions over Taiwan. Clearly, these are threats that very much interact with one another, most obviously in the case of Ukraine and food and energy inflation. But if we could nonetheless try and take them in turn to an extent, So if we start with food inflation and inflation more broadly, what's the global picture at this point? Which economies are experiencing particularly severe food price increases? And is the idea that we're now seeing inflation peaking reason to expect the situation to improve soon? Okay, so it's a very good question to start with. I mean, the the, the rise in food prices has been general, that that you have now very large global markets for, for food, um, particularly for sort of staple products, you know, thinking grain and maize, um, and then some sort of relatively simple processed products, sunflower, uh, sunflower oil and, and some kinds of milk and butter and, and, and things like this. So essentially the staples uh, are the things that have shot up in price over the last um, year or so. And if you go and look at what the World Bank says about this, it's it's lower income countries that have seen the biggest increases in those prices um, from from often relatively lower starting points. But nonetheless, these are you know, low income countries and therefore have more people with less income. And so the food price um, rises hit them very severely. There's a risk, as the UN has pointed out, of outright famine and starvation over the next year for very large numbers of people um, as a result of food price rises and food shortages. And then as the World Bank 
bank indicate there's an interaction uh, between the food price inflation, which then bleeds into uh, wider inflation, which hits household incomes, which then starts to feed into countries with very high levels, levels of debt. I mean, they pick out Afghanistan and Yemen and lots of poorer countries that have been hit by a great succession of crises of various sorts over the last year or so. So that's that's a pretty devastating picture at that end of it. But because it's a general rise uh, in food prices, it's kind of a squeeze that's appearing absolutely everywhere. Uh, and it's a squeeze that if you then go and talk to economists, at least in the developed world, and, and at least in the mainstream of economics in the developed world, it's not the sort of issues that economics or economic institutions are pretty well set up to deal with. The, the kind of standard story about inflation, which will t- tend to revolve around one of two things. Either it's about too much money has come into the system, therefore prices are going up. It's a sort of Milton Friedman uh, kind of story, although it's a very, very ancient story in economics. And you go all the way back to David Hume or someone to find a version of this. Um, mm. this, this is the demand problem. Well, it's not so much demand as, as, as more sort of monetary demand. So so there's a lot of money in the, the argument that, that Freeman would present is that once you have a growth in the amount of money in the economy over and above economic growth, this is just going to inevitably lead to price rises. People have more money in their pockets, they'll go out and spend it. This will drag prices up. So that's the sort of monetary uh, or monetarist explanation for, for what's happening at the minute. And this is how you explain inflation. Milton Friedman, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's one side of it. The other side is one that then says, well, actually, no, what you need is a, a mechanism by which price rises then turn into further price rises. And that's one that tends to say, no, look at the labour market, that once price rises have started to happen, workers will go out and demand more money to compensate for those them, them for those price rises. And this will then lead to costs going up for firms. Firms will be forced to put up prices. Workers will demand more wages as a result. And here we are in a wage price spiral. And now, basically, neither of these things explain what's happening with inflation over the last 18 months or so. I mean, it's just, you know, it is not an increase in the money supply that led to Russia invading Ukraine and whacking up prices there. It's not an increase in the money supply that's causing crop shortages and extreme weather uh, and, you know, harvest failures across the world. Equally, it's not workers demanding too much money that's causing any of these things, and nor is it workers demanding too much money that's causing inflation to go up. I mean, real wages, despite some quite important in places like Britain, the US victories by workers winning above uh, inflation pay increases. If you look at what's been happening in transport in particular, lorry drivers, bus drivers recently in the UK, um, despite that, wages on average are growing more slowly, much more slowly than headline inflation. So it's clearly not wage push uh, that's that's causing inflation to happen. So none of the mainstream stories really work in this. You have to look at something much more fundamental, which is, you know, okay, there's the geopolitical shock of what's happened um, with Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the two huge food producers being very severely disrupted over the last year. But then there's also this wider disruption of what's happening to harvests because of climate change, what's happening to the transport of food uh, because of climate change. You know, th- this this is something that's much deeper and a much more fundamental level of how the economy operates and economics usually thinks about. We, we think about sort of human institutions. We don't tend to think about the relationship of those human institutions to the natural world, which is what's really pushing inflation along now. So if you put all this together, 
you can see that energy prices, wholesale energy prices across Europe and Asia have come down really quite a lot since the summer, um, which should, you know, the way the market will eventually work, this should eventually start to translate into your energy price, uh, your domestic energy bills not going up quite as much as, as forecast at the very least. But it's food prices that are now really pushing up inflation in Britain, across the developed world, in the US. Uh, and that's not something that's likely to ease off very much over the next year or so because of all these sort of environmental and geopolitical impacts that are still playing out. So even with declining energy prices and declining cost of energy inputs into food production, that's just counteracted, you think, by the uh, environmental shocks and, and geopolitical shocks in your view? Yeah, it's counteracted by a sort of set of wheat harvests over this year that feed into the next round of harvests next year that you have shocks to fertilise. I mean, fertiliser production has been absolutely whacked by uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Russia is a huge supplier of some basic inputs into into fertiliser. If that trade is disrupted, and it has been disrupted, then there's less fertilizer around. Fertilizer prices go up. It becomes less cost-effective for farmers to grow so much. It's another massive rise in input costs for those trying to farm and grow produce. That turns into supply shortages, disruption, rising prices. So that's the, the pattern over this year, just from the sort of Russia-Ukraine invasion. You then throw in, of course all the extreme weather events, it's not going to get much better from this point onwards. I mean, your broad expectation should be this is just going to get worse. People might have seen the uh, forecast for glacier or glacier loss over the rest of this century. This isn't going to get better. And if it's not going to get better, food prices aren't really going to come down. You've been consistently sceptical of the efficacy of using interest rate rises to reduce inflation. According to a report by the IMF, they argue that a one percentage point increase in the Federal Reserve's main interest rate reduces food commodity prices by 13% after one quarter. They go on to say that central bank interest hikes have significantly eased price pressures, that higher rates tend to discourage inventory holdings and reduce speculative activities in commodity futures markets, thereby putting downward pressure on food prices. Um, what do you make of, of these claims? Because I wonder if it could be argued that although the diagnoses of, of why we have such high inflation may be wrong, it may not necessarily follow that the remedies prescribed by uh, the economic mainstream are therefore necessarily uh, wrong. Well, I'm, I'm happy to go with the IMF claiming that rising interest rates is squeezing out speculation in, in, in commodity markets. Uh, the, there is this for the last sort of probably the decade or so where we've seen these spikes in commodity prices, so meaning foods, sort of basic produce of various sorts, um, thinking particularly back to sort of the period leading into the Arab Spring uh, of 2010 into 2011. Um, the finger often gets pointed at, at speculation and the way in which, and, it, and it's quite it's quite an evil process. You basically sort of hold food back to force the price up and then sell it at a higher price. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not particularly uh, a sophisticated form of speculation ultimately here. You you can make it more sophisticated by building in lots of exciting financialized products. You can trade derivatives in food. You can do all sorts of things on top of it. I mean, the first derivatives ever written really were in were in uh, food uh, trading. Um, so I'm happy to see the, to, to go with the IMF saying that okay, the interest rate rises starts to squeeze out uh, this element of speculation, but it's not the element of speculation that's responsible for for driving the prices. It exaggerates what happens. It makes it worse. It makes the swings in prices worse because obviously you can speculate on the downside as well. It introduces instability and volatility in prices, and it can lead to prices going up more than they would have done otherwise. It amplifies that. But it's not actually the underlying cause. And the issue with saying, okay, we're going to raise interest rates is that actually you start to 
get into the more fundamental thing of why do central banks think rising interest rates is going to work? The basic reason is that they expect it to induce something like a domestic recession. And you want a domestic recession because you believe, and actually the Bank of England and other central banks have been quite clear about this, they believe that something like a wage price spiral is either in train or will come in train, and they have to try and frighten workers from not asking for higher pay. So they whack up interest rates and they keep doing this until the recession and the rise on employment is sufficient to in intimidate people who are not asking for higher, higher pay. And that's when you break the wage price spiral. Now, that's, that's the fundamental mechanism that's supposed to operate when you increase interest rates. What you're actually doing is first you're inducing a recession uh, at the same time as you know, prices are going up for reasons not connected to your interest rates. So what you're really going to get is, uh, and we're going to get this next year for, I will completely guarantee it, you can't guarantee things in economics, but we're going to get something like a recession and rising prices at the same time. In other words, stagflation, 70s style. Um, and we're going to then, on top of that, try and increase interest rates. So this is just bad, bad, bad all round. You're increasing interest rates. You're not dealing with the fundamental cause of inflation, which is these supply shocks that are happening. More than that, you're going to, if anything, worsen those supply shocks in the future because you're making it more expensive to invest. And if you don't invest, other things being equal, you're not going to improve uh, what's happening to supply conditions. So in other words, by making it more expensive to invest, you're going to worsen supply in the future. This is adding to the problems that are causing inflation. So this is sort of maybe in the short run, you can rinse out some speculation, but frankly, there's probably better ways to do this. Maybe in the short run, you can drive up interest rates so much that the kind of intimidatory effect of a recession has some impact, but it's grim if you're having to do this. But in the long run, this is going to contribute to a worsening supply situation which is the fundamental driver of the inflation that we're seeing now. There is, of course, some variation in how central banks have responded to the crisis, with the European Central Bank being notably more hawkish on inflation than the Fed, which prompted Emmanuel Macron to openly criticise the policy of the ECB in October, when he accused the bank of pursuing a policy of shattering demand to contain inflation. What's your assessment of the way the different central banks have responded to the crisis, and, and which do you think have, have responded better? Well, it's much of a muchness by this point. The 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 basic, I mean, the the leads for what central banks are doing globally is being set by the Federal Reserve. Um, the mechanism here is that once the Federal Reserve, which is, is there to sort of manage the dollar area, if you like, once it starts saying we're going to put up interest rates, that makes the dollar denominated assets more attractive to people with you know, funds to invest in assets. So you go and look for something as a high return, dollar denominated assets. If the Fed is deciding to jam up interest rates, other things being equal start to look more attractive. That makes the dollar appreciating value, which is certainly what's happened over last year. That increases inflationary pressures around the rest of the world because the dollar is going up in value. Every other currency is relatively falling in value. And that means that it's harder and more expensive for you to import things. So there's an inflationary pressure that induces. And there's other mechanisms that start to happen here. There are outflows of capital chasing dollars that now look more, or dollar assets that now look more attractive. So there's a real pressure on every other central bank to start to have to also tighten monetary policy, typically through raising interest rates. Although in the case of the Bank of Japan, there was this turnaround just before Christmas where they had had for, for ages, I mean, for God, it's decades pretty much, um, very, very loose uh, monetary policy to deal with this peculiarly sort of deflationary situation that, that Japan had got itself in actually from well, the end of the 1980s into the 1990s. This is them experimenting with negative uh, interest rates and so on. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the invention of modern quantitative easing and uh, 
uh, or at least it's first sort of talked about there. And this idea that that the Bank of Japan more recently was doing what it called yield, yield curve control, which without getting too far into the sort of details of it, is basically saying we will set a target for what government borrowing costs, long-term government borrowing costs will be, and we will intervene to make sure that that target is met, which means in practice you just have very loose uh, monetary policy. Now, what they did just before Christmas was say, OK, we're going to loosen yield curve control, which in other words is a big signal that they're uh, tightening monetary policy. Uh, and in other words, the Bank of Japan is also sort of moving in line with the pace that is being set by the Federal Reserve. That's the coordination that's, that's working uh, across the globe at the minute. Amongst that mix, it's not that easy to pick out a central bank that's responding to any of this stuff necessarily particularly well. I mean, the amount of novelty in how central banks now behave is quite limited. They've all become fairly similar in what they think they're doing over the last, particularly in the kind of the the sort of historic centre of developed capitalism that you have central banks that view themselves as independent, have an inflation mandate, that view themselves as using interest rates and since two thousand eight nine quantitative easing to try and you know, regulate the kind of monetary space and regulate the economy and manage inflation, uh, and and that's roughly what they do. And they they have that fairly limited set of tasks. There are some that behave differently. If you look at the behaviour of the Russian central bank over um, the last well, year or so since the the invasion started. You know, it's, it's been doing something different to manage a very peculiar situation with Russia under sanctions and the isolation of its banking and monetary systems. Uh, the Bank of China has pursued its own course for some period of time. Uh, the, the use of forms of, of credit guidance, of you know, trying to use lower interest rates to encourage different kinds of investment, particularly green investment, is something that's been happening there. But basically, once you start saying, OK, central banks are things that need to fight inflation and it's just central banks – you're, in current circumstances, you're asking too much of those central banks. Like We are dealing with inflation and price rises and shocks that are not things that monetary policy can actually immediately deal with. You can get some distance on it by uh, having a, a, you know, a massive recession. I mean, BlackRock in their global investment outlook for this year was quite blunt about this, that we had, you know, BlackRock argue, and I think correctly, that we have what they call a new inflationary regime, a change in the kind of inflation that we're now living with, that's driven by these supply shocks, geopolitics, environmental shocks, all of these things. Uh, and in this new inflationary regime, interest rate changes and monetary policy is less effective unless, in their words, you crush real economic activity. Right, so central banks have to really jam up interest rates to huge levels to rinse out inflation. Now, they're not going to do that. Likely as not, whatever they say about independence, it's uh, it's unlikely that any government will sit there and just let their central bank put up interest rates to 10 or 12 or 15% or whatever it might be. So so there are hard limits on what can be achieved. Uh, and it's probably just as well, because I, I don't think I like the sound of domestic economies being crushed to, to deal with inflation. This isn't good. So everywhere you're looking at a problem, which is the weakness of central banks actually dealing with the inflation that we've got and the unwillingness of governments to sort of take serious action on inflation themselves. It's happening in fits and starts, but, you know, you can see with Rishi Sunak's sort of slightly ludicrous list of pledges from two days ago. Number one, oh, we're going to halve inflation by the end of the year. Well, the Bank of England says it's going, on its forecast, says inflation is going to halve in Britain, regardless of what the government does. But also, is the government actually going to do anything? With the, are they going to step in? Are they going to introduce price controls? Are they going to do anything practical to make this happen? No, of course not. They're just going to sit there and say the, the Bank of England is independent. We're not going to touch that and, and just allow the forecast to play out. That's their hope here. Um, I think the argument about more direct forms of regulation and prices has really shifted a long way in the last year or so. That You can see 
you know, this time last year, Isabella Weber, um, economist based in University of Massachusetts, had a piece in The Guardian saying, look, the inflation we got now means we should be talking about price controls. Absolute bedlam uh, across all the sort of mainstream economist land. Oh, this is outrageous. Back to the 70s. Who could possibly imagine su- such a thing? What on earth is this? Yeah. Most notoriously from Paul Krugman. Yeah, yeah, and Paul Krugman having a go at it, and a complete turnaround, including actually from Paul mm. Krugman, but 12 months later, that actually governments are introducing forms of price controls, uh, including even internationally, with this attempt to sort of regulate the price of, of Russian oil that the EU and the US and Canada are trying to impose. But domestically, you have versions of price controls. You have the energy price guarantee in Britain, this huge intervention to try and really hugely actually stop rises in the price of domestic energy bills. So, so the entire argument is shifting here, and I think that's going to carry on happening. It's certainly going to carry on happening over this year if we carry on seeing increases in the price of food and not necessarily much impact immediately from increases in interest rates. Now, there's a balance in how this is going to play out. Inflation, headline inflation is very likely to come down from here because energy prices are falling out of the system. Food price rises are still there and we'll still end up with higher inflation than we've been used to for a long period of time and potentially inflation above average wage increases, which is a very grim situation to get to because you're still getting poorer and poorer typically in that situation. But we might also start to see, as that plays out, governments getting increasingly inclined to think about different sets of tools they can use to intervene and and, and try and restrain price rises across the economy. Amongst those countries which are not seeing quite as elevated levels of inflation as other places, are there any particular commonalities I mean, it's, it tends to be, as it has been for, for a long period of time, that, that you know, there's, there's a basic developed versus developing divide here that, broadly speaking, developed countries, is for all sorts of historic reasons, have uh, lower rates of inflation and developing countries tend to have somewhat higher. And that, that's still playing out. Um, amongst the sort of set, if you take the whole set of, of you know, every country in the world, or at least all the major economies, it, it's, it's much of a muchness. Like This is a common increase in prices that even some like Japan, which for decades has basically had very low uh, rates of inflation, has seen some uh, increases in that because of the the, the effect of, of disruptions to supply from. I mean, we haven't really talked about the end of COVID lockdown. Of course, that's one part of the thing that, that's been playing out here. Uh, this surge in demand once that, uh, that COVID uh, lockdowns ended, throwing the war in Ukraine, throwing the cumulative by this point effects of, of climate change and extreme weather and all the rest of it. This is a sort of common impact uh, that you're seeing ev- everywhere. The, the countries that have tended to respond best to it are the ones that have stepped outside of the conventional framework of what you know mainstream economics says you should do to deal with inflation, which is basically put up interest rates. Um, and that if you look in Europe, the various proposals and in some cases actual legislation to do things like introduce um, caps on the price of domestic energy and introduce fairer mechanisms for pricing that energy. So, you know, places like Norway uh, springs to mind where they have, you know, an allocation of how much energy you can buy at a certain price. And then if you consume above this, you'll start to pay more. Um, A set of proposals from the German Commission on Prices for how to regulate energy prices in Germany in in a fair and sustainable fashion. In Britain, of course, we've got this sort of just a a mess of different slightly half-cocked initiatives and one really whacking great intervention in the energy price guarantee, which which has resulted and is interacting with our very liberalised, very privatised energy supply system, unusually so in, in European terms, um, to actually end up with, despite the vast amounts of money the government is having to spend trying to control prices, very 
high uh, domestic prices over this year. And potentially, if the government does actually go ahead with just scrapping the energy price guarantee, as Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt said they will in April, potentially a further massive increase in bills in, in April this year. Mm. So, so it's, it's, do, it's a do mess. Do you think they will do that? I don't think so. Um, I think what they're going to do, and they said they are looking at this, uh, the, the Treasury is going to try and cook something up, which, which does a sort of a kind of fine balancing act of, of reducing the headline costs as much as possible, but working out just about how many people they need to, to be blunt pay off to not have too many people complain too much about it. I mean, that's the kind of balancing act in this. They'll probably chuck in for the really sort of desperately poor part of society. Um, they'll probably throw in some additional assistance there. They'll just get that out of the door. And that, that is the package as it will arrive uh, in, in April. It won't do anything fundamental. It's not going to change the fundamentals of the energy supply system in Britain. It's not going to say, OK, we're going to actually just bring all this into public ownership and regulate prices properly and, and apply some sort of more rational process here. It's going to carry on being what it has been for a really long time, which is broadly a really long time being the last 30 years or so, broadly government saying it's great to privatise all this. It's great to have uh, a complete reliance on the energy, the day-to-day even energy market in Europe. We'll just buy our gas at the spot price if we need to. There's loads and loads of gas out there. We're all going to be fine. Sounds good in the 1990s. You know, 30 years later, it's, it's basically a disaster and it's why we have such high prices. Um, they're not going to reform that. Uh, there's nothing in anything Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt says they're going to reform that. This is going to be a balancing act to try and get them through to the next election and not lose too many votes on this question. You've already touched on it a little bit, but one of the threats to the global economy in the, in the coming year that you identify is that of extreme weather events. We're, of course, currently experiencing unusually high winter temperatures in Europe. Last year, we saw the devastating floods in Pakistan, while elsewhere, hydropower generation was undermined by a lack of rain. Very recently, we've seen reports of trouble in the reinsurance markets uh, with both the war in Ukraine and, and weather events driving up the cost of reinsurance by as much as 200% in, in January, which is threatening to raise premiums and reduce what insurers are willing to cover. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how climate change will impact inflation and why you think it is that the effects of climate change continue to be underplayed in, in the economic mainstream and, and whether you see an increasing uh, appetite for thinking about the importance of, of climate yes that's, that's that's i think is a sort of fundamental question here or it ought to be for like how we think about economics from from really this point onwards i mean probably we should have been thinking about this earlier but here we are and um, the, the 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 bit on the bit on climate change in general you can go and dig out the modeling and what happens to over a sort of longer period of time and here we're talking the next sort of 10 20 30 years you know to the end of the century what happens to farming under various different scenarios and and there's a balance of where you can grow food and where you can't and it shifts and the kind of food you can grow can shift so you can get some sort of optimistic projections say oh it's great we'll actually be able to grow more food in northern europe because it's warmer but yeah never mind mass desertification across um, great chunks of africa the middle east and, uh, and and around the equator that kind of thing so so you can get that kind of long-term uh, forecast on what's going to happen to food supply over this period of time. The bit that I think is more immediately economically relevant in the sense that like this is a thing that's now affecting us right now today rather than talking about what might happen in the future and this is where we really have to start thinking about climate change and the environment as an immediate economic issue not this catastrophe is going to happen later it's kind of happening now is is extreme weather uh, and the increasing prevalence the very obvious increasing prevalence we all experience this of extreme weather events so floods uh, droughts uh, you know the cold snaps the sudden heat waves i mean what was it 40 degrees at least in Britain over the summer and it's extraordinary things happening um, and that 
has impacts that aren't just the obvious ones that you see reported, I mean, regularly now. It's, it's sort of almost daily that you get some account of a harvest being affected by some freak weather uh, event. So it's it's droughts or it's frost or it's it's uh, floods. It's something along these lines. And, and it's not necessarily on the scale of Pakistan, a truly catastrophic uh, event that happens. It can be a relatively minor thing that, that starts to impact on farmers often uh, themselves pretty marginal and producing at the margin and it starts to impact on food supply. That's the sort of obvious part of it. The bit that really starts to get, it's not right to say it's interesting, but it is interesting, is that when you move out of that, okay, that seems fairly clear, right? Extreme weather makes it hard to grow stuff, is when you get into the, well, then how does it affect the rest of the economy? And, and you mentioned a couple of things there. Hydropower doesn't work so well if you don't have enough water running through rivers. Well, also, you know, ship transport, uh, boat transport down the Danube or the Rhine or the Mississippi in the US. It's been massively affected over this year by the drought and by a lack of water. It also turns out that French nuclear power plants uh, are not able to run at full capacity because the water in French rivers has got too hot over the summer, so it's disrupting their ability to use it uh, for cooling. So they've had to reduce their nuclear power capacity, which has then fed into uh, a rise in energy prices across Europe because France is a major exporter of electricity. It does seem grimly ironic in the case of hydropower and nuclear, which are both, of course, seen as solutions to the problem, you know, whether or not one believes that in the case of nuclear, but that's how those uh, sectors are seen. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, look, and there, there are other sort of even more strange impacts of this. The uh, ocean acidification is um, very nice for jellyfish. So jellyfish swarms are starting to clog up nuclear power plants more frequently than they used to, right? These are all costs that start to add up. If you ha- can't transport goods down the Rhine or the Danube or whatever as, as, as easily as you used to, this is a big increase in your transport costs. It produces either an increase in costs or an outright shortage. So this all starts to add up. This is all feeding into that, what we directly experience as shortages and price increases. And it's coming out of extreme weather and the disruption uh, to the Earth's climate. Uh, And it's not something that easily fits into how, actually, I say mainstream, I I think it's a sort of general issue in economics, is that for a very long period of time, in fact, all of our lifetimes and many generations prior to us, and certainly actually, you know, depending on how you want to look at this, you can say, okay, the entirety of the Holocene, so it's tens of thousands of years, uh, we've had a climate that works in a certain way. You know, At the very least, all of industrial capitalism fits easily inside, up until now, uh, a period of relative climate stability, which is now changing very, very rapidly. The period in which economics develops as a subject of research is one in which the climate is stable. It is simply not really a question that economics has to confront itself with. It takes a very sort of human-centred view, if you like. It says, okay, we're going to talk about these human institutions and how they interact with each other and maybe sometimes touch on what's happening in the rest of the world. Now, there are kind of minority currents around economics, ecological economics, that that think a bit more seriously about this. People might have seen that Herman Daly, one of the pioneers of of ecological economics, actually uh, died last year. That is a is a way of thinking that yeah, I think is incredibly fruitful because it's it's important insights into the relationship not just between people, 
and and you know we can have a big old de- debate about how people should relate to each other in the economy you know will markets clear properly the free marketeers and the neoclassicists say yes they do a Keynesian say no they don't because aggregate demand might be insufficient it's basically ways of people relating to each other all of it doesn't really talk about the environment except as something that might occasionally appear as an externality rather than being something that is the fundamental grounds on which all of human economic activity is in fact built and if it becomes unstable all of our human economic activity is going to be disrupted in ways that none of our models right now really cope with i mean this isn't how a standard macroeconomic model views the world the things these big basically computer programs sitting in central banks and other large economic institutions do not view the world like this. They view the world as fundamentally stable, that the human economy is self-stabilizing. When economists talk about equilibrium, this is what they're thinking about. There are mechanisms that pull the human economy back to stability and the wider environment is just uh, it's just stable. You just don't have to think about it. So, so it's, 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 a, it's a deep sort of intellectual challenge, right? This is the fundamentals of what is knowledge when you talk about economics is being thrown into into disarray, I think increasing disarray, by the fact that the environment, all of this stuff is taking place on, doesn't work in the way that it used to. And this is this is not going to be easy to deal with. I, I, there's going to be a real resistance, and there's already some resistance to changing this, to having to think differently about how the economy operates. Because, of course, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It is also the crisis that we're living through. So it's also a question of like, well, how do we work out what solutions to implement? How do we work out not just how we think about this? What do you do about this? So this is going to be fiendishly difficult. This is going to knock, you know, when you talk about classic periods of crisis in economics, like 2008 and 1970s, and 1930s, this is far worse and far deeper than anything economics as an intellectual exercise has had to deal with before, because it's kind of worse and deeper than anything any human being alive has had to deal with for many, many generations. And do you think it's primarily the novelty of the situation which prevents people more in the economic mainstream from grappling with this issue? Or or is it more that if one were to grapple with it, one starts to butt up against fundamental issues with the sustainability of, of capitalism in the long term, and that, and that capital has always depended on you know what's sometimes described as, as, as cheap nature. That, that, that's I think that's a very um, I think it's a crucial sort of point here. I mean, one of it is just like you know. You want people want to carry on doing what they were doing already because that's how they think. That's how everybody thinks about the world. Like we arrive thinking about the world with a certain set of basically mental models about how to process all this stuff, and it's actually hard to rejig all of those and have to think in a different way. I mean, there's a sort of standard model of how progress happens in science. You know, Thomas Kuhn or someone is that normal science is what people do because it's what everyone does and it takes a big shock to try and change it. I mean, I don't think could necessarily get that right as a description of how science operates, but as a sort of shorthand, it is, kind of, it is kind of the problem here. There's a conservatism to this. So there's an institutional conservatism. You have big institutions that put a lot of resources into thinking about the world in a certain way. Central banks spend money building huge models that work in a certain way. They don't want to just junk that. So there's a conservatism that's just built in there. But the second part of it is probably the more interesting part, and it's the more problematic part, is that once you start to say, okay, perhaps the environment is a kind of, you know, let's call it a sort of independent variable, or at least something that isn't just going to turn up and whack our models, it's actually going to be something we have to feed into our modelling. It's the basis on which the modelling is possible. It's also going to be affected by what happens with the wider economy, actually potentially a fairly direct sense. And once you have to start to think about this, you're no longer thinking about economics as a purely sort of human-centred subject. So you can have to think a bit wider than that. And potentially you're going to have to start running uh, into some questions that 
the mainstream of economics really doesn't want to think about, hasn't really tried to think about this for a long period of time, which is a question of value, where value comes from, what is the relationship of human beings to nature, and what is the relationship of both those things to what we understand as value, and therefore a really sort of significant intellectual shift if you want to start dealing with um, dealing with the, the kind of crises that, that we're now not just going into and maybe it'll all get better. It's kind of going into and we're not going to get out of this. This is what the future looks like. So so it's a deep intellectual problem, I think, because of this question of seeing economics not as a relationship just between people, but as a relationship between people and nature, and then trying to rationalise that relationship between people and people and nature, and potentially, therefore, having to talk about the old classical concerns, the concerns of people like David Ricardo or Adam Smith or Karl Marx, of what is value and what does it mean to talk about humans producing value and what is the relationship of that production of value to nature itself. In contrast, and going back to your point about the discussion around price controls, do you therefore think that the the, the sort of learning process we've seen amongst economists and, and an increasing appetite for at least being prepared to discuss the issue reflects the fact that that is a much less profound question than the one you're talking about regarding regarding the natural world and it, it you know it simply doesn't raise those same questions and of course capitalist economies have implemented price controls before exactly this uh, i think it's it's sort of you're still within a, a broadly sort of familiar set of uh, concerns at this point um and and, and it's shifting i mean uh, olivia blanchard who is if memory serves a former chief economist i mean big cheese in economics land former chief economist at the imf um on Twitter thread, you know, a couple of days ago, talking about how well actually inflation is is kind of the products of bargaining between workers and and capital, and you know it's all about bargaining strength, and you need to think about maybe you know, changing the bargaining power of different people if you want to uh, change what happens with inflation, and you know Paul Krugman and a few other people jumping up and down and saying, oh yes, this is this is what we now need to do. Now, this is this is a familiar version of, of understanding inflation, familiar in the sense of like it's been there since the 1970s, and then we sort of forgot about it and focused some other things, and it's it's not outside of what we would normally think of, what economists would normally think of as stuff you would talk about when dealing with the economy. The the really big issue here, and, and or one that I've increasingly started to try and think about, is that, look, if you have something like, if you have a monetary, if you have a credit money economy and everybody's using money to buy stuff and they're paid in money and they can borrow money, and it's subject to these sort of, um, these sort of shocks in supply and these kind of shortages, the basic model of economics that is implicit in how we do economics, where you can always take your money and go off and buy something else and somebody else will be able to supply it, doesn't in fact work. And that means the really big sort of idea that Keynes has and Keynesians have and Keynesian economics is about, which is that you can aggregate all of these monetary demands into aggregate demand. And that's how we're going to think about the macroeconomy. That starts to break down if you can't aggregate these separate demands properly because there's shortages all over the place. Now, there are there are some more uh, you know, outside the mainstream heterodox economists who do think about this. Uh, Janos Kornai, who died a couple of years ago, Hungarian economist, you know, wrote a lot about shortages in the you know the so-called socialist system in Hungary at the time, but we need to I think apply some of that analysis to the world we live in on capitalism with a climate crisis. This starts to look like a shortage economy. Uh, it's a perpetual supply side issue that if there are price increases and inflation and shocks and thing and disruption happening all the time, we need to think in terms of shortage rather than abundance. We need to think in terms of what happens to the macroeconomy once you can't have aggregate demand working in the way that your models all say it does. So you know, let's get a bit sort of technical, but th- this is this is way outside 
I would say, of, of like the sets of concerns that economics typically uh, bothers itself with or, or seeks to understand the world with. On the geopolitical questions, so just as the COVID-19 pandemic was treated by many analysts as a sort of one-time only unique exogenous shock to the global economy, the same could perhaps be said of the response to the Ukraine war. And we may, of course, not see a geopolitical event of such consequence in the near term. But if one believes that we're entering a period of renewed interstate rivalry with states increasingly inclined to make irredentist claims against one another, uh, coupled with increasing economic protectionism, uh, then it does seem reasonable to suppose that such events are going to become more common in the coming decades. And furthermore, the heightening of tension over Taiwan shows how just the threat of such conflicts uh, now have powerful effects with the US, China and others seeking to reduce their technological dependence on Taiwan's uh, semiconductor industry. Is it your opinion that we should expect more interstate conflict, sometimes perhaps short of war? Um, Do you think that will increase in the coming years with all the attendant economic fallout? It looks like it, doesn't it? Um, I mean, Taiwan's like incredible. We have, what, 60% of the world's semiconductor manufacturing is located on this island that now sits on this huge sort of geopolitical uh, fault line. And by the way, semiconductor manufacturing is another good one for extreme weather events having peculiar impacts. I mean, to make semiconductors, you need a great deal of water. There was a drought in Taiwan. It affected semiconductor production. This is uh, two years ago. So there's, there's, there's a huge number of different interacting very large uh, elements coming into play here, which, which I mean, it's a fashion for labelling it the polycrisis, a slightly awkward term, but it at least captures the idea that these different things in play now, so the kind of standard bit of the economists will get their heads around quite easily, which is, for instance, there's loads of debt out there and there's a risk of this being uh, provoking a financial crisis. We've seen some versions of this in the crypto collapse over the, over the last year, relatively uh, self-contained. I mean, terrible actually for a bunch of people who put their money into it, often not very uh, well off and lost a great deal. Jacobin has a, a piece in that this week, but that's a kind of fairly sort of usual economic crisis. We can all see, yes, financial crisis, uh, instability, and we have some reasonably good understandings of this. You then throw in the sort of geopolitical tensions that in a world where it's subject to the crises and supply shortages and the uh, really in some ways, quite old-fashioned resource demands that that are starting to kick in. So that, for instance, decarbonisation, so you're switching uh, at the minute, for example, lots and lots of cars from internal combustion engines into uh, battery-powered electric vehicles, that requires a great deal of, of rare earth metals for all the batteries that you're going to make. Where are you going to find those rare earth metal, metals? Well, for instance, you might find them in Greenland. So there's a, there's a clash between major powers over who gets access uh, to the rare earths that are contained in huge numbers in what is otherwise a relatively unspoiled wilderness of Greenland. And, and you know, the recently elected leftist government there has a quite a firm line on not allowing mining to happen but you can start to see the clashes happening in unusual you know unexpected really sort of frontier places like this uh arctic ice melts and suddenly it's easier to get oil and gas uh out of out of out of the arctic this is the arctic ice melts and suddenly it's easier to sail a boat around the top of the world rather than around the middle of it thus you're saving yourself a great deal of time transporting goods from china into europe for example somewhere down the line uh as the world is being reshaped by these processes, this is provoking crises of a depth and severity and complexity that, that we've not really had to cope with before, because at the very least, you've had a 
for, you know, for the period of industrial capitalism's existence, 200 years or so, you basically had a stable global climate. It's been fairly predictable in how it operates. That's now thrown into question and every single other part of the economy and human society is, is being disrupted as a result. So if you have this instability and you have the sets of demands within that instability for things like how do we continue to make profits? How do we continue to ensure, if you're a government, that the companies operating in your nation state territory continue to make profits, then you're going to start to see clashes uh, between those governments. And that means more geopolitical instability on top of everything else uh, uh, that's happening. Now, and by the way, there isn't really an obvious way to, to resolve this. Like we saw a, a dramatic failure of sort of collective coordination during COVID. You, know, you could see it on what happened with the disputes once vaccines were available, vaccine nationalism, that you have a scarce resource that's essential for everybody to try and get hold of. And the result is squabbles over how they're produced and who gets them, hoarding in some places, uh, not enough being supplied in others. There's mm. no obvious Hoard, coordination taking PPE place. Hoarding PPE as well. In the oh, yeah, hoarding PPE. Well. Uh, you, you get this sort of aggressive attempts to sort of you know close off uh, bits of your economy, close off your economy to people coming from outside. You can see the sort of backwards and forwards on this. Um, it's, it's you know, there's, there's, I think in some cases, there's been a withholding of vaccine deliveries to countries that have voted the wrong way in, in, in UN resolutions. This, I think, a couple of instances of really sort of brutal stuff like this. So, so every question suddenly gets thrown into this great mix of... Uh, contestation of the fundamental drive under capitalism accumulation, the need to protect the conditions of that accumulation which is what the nation states themselves see themselves as doing, sort of fundamental status here and no obvious authority that exists anywhere that can uh, rationalise all of this. I should say that this is, again, this is a change over what we've been used to for the last sort of 30, 40 years or so, maybe not quite so long, at least since the Cold War, where you did have at least one fairly major power that was able to somewhat uh, regulate how the rest of the world operates, and that was the US. That no longer quite applies. The reach of the US is clearly not as great as it once was. The dollar's still there as a, the fundamental currency of the of the world system. But, you know, you get people like Zoltan Pozar and others arguing, and they may be overstating it right now, but you can see it down the line, that the fundamental organising unit of the dollar as a way of holding together the global economy is now being subject to all these challenges uh, from different currencies in the rest of the world. The fact that the US can just go, okay, no more dollar use for you, Russia, is a really big incentive, not just for Russia, but for everyone else who thinks it might end up running into the US at some point to get out of the dollar and use a different currency. So you use a renminbi instead. You, know, you, you, you switch out of, uh, out of the dollar system. This is undermining US power. This is the something that we had that was close to a hegemon for the world economy, uh, suddenly isn't operating quite uh, the way that it used to. Now, capitalism has gone through periods of hegemonic shift and crisis before. Um, Giovanni Arrighi's act's a really good book, uh, the, the, the Long 20th Century. is a history of an account of how that process happens, actually going back to the, you know, the 14th century or so. First it's Florence, and then it's Holland, and then you get London, then you get Washington. And there's this movement uh, throughout history of like the organising centre of capitalism. We're now in a period where that organising centre is weaker than it was, and there's no obvious alternative organising centre, so it's instability on top of everything else. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. 
You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.